This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to Connect with Community Waikato on Free FM 89.0. I'm Holly Snape from Community Waikato and have with me the lovely Annette Evans. Welcome, Annette. Oh, thanks, Holly. I love coming on your show. I always love to have you here. And today we're going we're gonna to get political. Oh. <laughs> um, don't we always? So, uh, and when I say political, we're not talking parties. We're talking about the system, I suppose. And um, we're... Um, organisations such as Insight Endometriosis fit into that and how it is you survive and how it is you navigate um, systems uh, in terms of looking for support so you can support people. Mm -hmm. So um, you sent through some material as well and I've I've really enjoyed reading um, reading the... It's a submission, is it? Yeah, the submission to the Women's Health Strategy. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. and a really interesting submission. First of all, can you explain to me um, what the Women's Health Strategy is? Yeah, so just going forward, there's a, an opportunity um, for the health system to engage around women's health because there currently isn't a women's health strategy. And so the, our document is, is to try and get endometriosis included in that strategy. At the moment, there's no certainty at all. Mm. Um, and, and I guess that fits alongside a whole lot of other rather neglected health issues um, which impact women. So I was going to say, why why a health strategy for women? Um, why is that needed? Why wouldn't we just have a general health strategy? Yeah, well, I think there's you know, a perception that's being addressed um, worldwide that women are not just small men. Yes. And, um, <laughs> You know, it's taken a long time for the medical professionals and the researchers to get their head around just that concept. But, uh, you know, I think about some of the health challenges affecting women over the the decades and we really haven't progressed anything. And it's the lack of a strategy, um, you know, at the top level to promote some of this stuff and make make change happen. Mm. So endometriosis, you know, the research is talking about it being a pretty common condition, one in nine? That, that's absolutely right. An Australian study placed it at, at a rate of one in nine uh, women there could expect to be diagnosed by the age of 44. And so that's a diagnosed endometriosis, which makes us think that potentially one in nine might be an underestimation? Yeah, well, in fact, I would argue that there would be a group of people that are never going to be diagnosed in New Zealand. Um, You know, our diagnostic rates are pretty dire. um, And yet, uh, you know, rare diseases, for instance, is doing a very effective job. They've got an international um, action plan around rare diseases, and they would argue that a three-year delay is too long. And here we are looking at at an 8.9-year delay, for one in nine women. That's um, yeah, that's right. It's I mean, staggering. It, yeah, it is staggering. Um, but it, it, you know, when you start reading the stories which you have um, at the end of um, your submission, hmm. 
you can see how this is happening. And I think one of them really blew me away. It was um, Morena's story, mm-hmm. um, you know, which in her diagnosis um, journey reflected those those attitudes, the biases that women face, um, mm-hmm. you know, the minimization of her pain and of her symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being told just to lose some weight, like that was the solution that the GP offered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it made me reflect as I was reading about that, you know, what does that do for your own ability to advocate for your health when you're walking into a context like this and, and that is the response, you you need to lose weight? And and she was lucky, she was a nurse, so she had um, additional knowledge and, and some um, probably resources, you know, at her hands as a result of that, that, mm. that background. But I, I did think, you know, what does that do to a, a person who's gone and to share their story um, and, and to talk about the pain and the symptoms they're experiencing just to be told, well, you, you need to lose some weight and you just need to eat a bit better. Oh, it's completely invalidating. Completely. Completely and utterly. And in fact, there's a research report done recently in New Zealand about early onset cancers, bowel cancer, um, and the barriers to being diagnosed with that. And what came through to me was that the experience of the women... Um, compared with the men, and a lot of the women were told it's probably a you know a new head basically. Um, men weren't getting that, um, and so there's this perception, you know, maybe it's a you know mental health issue showing up rather than a a physical issue, mm. and that gender bias is there. Yeah, I, I was reading research on um, experiences of pain and minimisation of women's pain versus men experiencing pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this speaks to exactly why we need a, a woman's um, health strategy, doesn't it? Oh, a- a- absolutely. And, and it comes back in a little way to that, you know, women, aren't they just little men? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, the, the drugs, as a, for instance, that have been processed for um, you know, anti-inflammatories and pain medications were all done originally on men. And it's only very recently they've started to assess uh, medications for women. Yeah. Uh, they're two very different physiologies. Well, yeah, we know that the hormones are very different in the body and, and yeah. you know, that's often what regulates many different aspects of what's going on for you. So it makes sense that hmm. quite different. And, and, of course, that brings us to potentially individualising medications and the need for that as well but certainly at a at a macro level understanding the differences between um yeah male and female in terms of hormones and physiology and all of that stuff oh absolutely and i I think also it comes down to um you know prioritization and discussion you i i reflect always on um you know prostate cancer i think we talk more about prostate cancer which is a you know a, a condition affecting a a smallish number of men, more than we talk about endometriosis, which affects large numbers of women. So, you know, there's there's this whole sense of inequity that's pervasive across societal attitudes. Yeah, yeah, although we do talk about breast cancer a lot. Yeah, we do, and I guess the the men miss out on that conversation because it does affect, uh, you know, a a percentage of men. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. My own father, um, who ended up with prostate cancer, also had breast cancer, so, you know, Mm. (laughs) it it certainly happens. Um, But again, maybe breasts are more of a priority. (laughs) Let's not go there. Let's not go down that road. (laughs) Hey, um, you know, you talk about equity, and that was one thing Mm. I'd thought about when I was... um, 
when I was reading through the submission and you talked in there about inequitable distribution of resources, um, you know, in, in terms of, I, I'd read that in terms of um, options, <laughs> in terms of what's available. Did you want to talk us through what that, that means from your perspective? Yeah, well, I guess a good example that we cited in there was comparing um, arthroplasty, so hip and knee replacements. Yes. Um, and the access of that to to comparing that with women uh, going through the public system. So um, in there, my summary was that there are more women having hip replacements at the age of 80 than there are women at the age of 30 having endometriosis surgeries, and by a considerable margin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's quite scary when you, when you think about the implications of that um, and what sits behind that. Yeah, and and a lot of it comes down to resourcing, but ultimately that's a prioritisation and a, I guess a political decision mm. in there. We mm. keep coming back to that word. Yeah, it is. Um, what's interesting is for a lot of those so-called elective surgeries, <laughs> um, you know, you, you actually need to be very far down the track to even be considered for a hip replacement or a knee replacement. But it says something about what endometriosis is considered as um, and and the lack of, I don't know if it's understanding um, of the impact, but you talk a lot about the impact that, in, that sufferers of endometriosis, you know, the impact it has on their lives. Do you want to explore that a little bit and just sort of let us know about the range of ways that people are impacted? Yeah, yeah. So it's easy to, to minimise endometriosis and you talk about period pain. There's this word just that just automatically appears in the front of that. And uh, and yet it's so much broader. It's stopping people from studying. It's stopping people from uh, working or um, earning a living, having mm. a family. Yeah, because it's not just pain, is it? Oh no, no, it's not. Yeah. And, 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 and and I use the word just, but it's not only pain. There are many other symptoms that come. Oh, there there are. But beyond that, it's it's also impact, impacting the other side. So you think yes. about employers, um, places of study who want their students to succeed. All of these things, those aspects are actually much bigger than just the individual. Mm. Um, you know, there have been studies overseas that quantify that economic impact is actually much bigger than the health dollars. Mm. And, uh, and so in my mind, an investment in the health dollars would pay back enormous amounts in terms of economic efficiencies and productivity. Yeah, and even diversion from... Um from tertiary hospital visits potentially as well if um, uh, now that was the other thing I'd written down in my questions mm. you do talk about the diagnostic delay um, mm. and it is a long time before generally people are diagnosed what does an earlier diagnosis mean why is it be obviously you know <laughs> yeah tell me why why is it better to be diagnosed early how does it change things for you yeah I guess at a whole heap of levels so from a personal level that validation and the ability to get appropriate treatment uh, ultimately that could mean that you're not facing a fertility issue um, at a later stage as a, as, as a for instance um, but you know from a um, the perspective of a health system isn't it better to diagnose earlier um, and get treatments out of the way rather than protract that period mm. and you know, somebody's going to turn up to their GP every three months looking for yeah. medications and so on. Aren't you better to treat them mm. once and treat them appropriately? Um, so there are, you know, there's there's this weird kind of let's delay the inevitable, but ultimately it's costing um, 
not not only the individual but the wider populace through taxpayer dollars and uh, uh, impacts on employers and and so on from a pure cost benefit analysis if somebody just sat down and did that I'm sure there'd be a payback period the same way that there's a a payback period on looking at putting solar energy on your roof. I mean, yeah. why aren't we looking at through that equity lens of what's value for money here? Yeah, yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was remembering um, an area that you talked about uh, in terms of treatment and that um, the DHB was advised that you, you actually have to have six months of medical management do you want to read that quote out? Yeah, so this was a shocker. The DHB advises there's a national guideline published last year which is quite clear that medical or hormonal management, which should be the first line of treatment, and this is not, this is what the DHB recommends as well and will not accept a referral unless that patient has had medical management for six months. Mm. So, I mean, that's a shocker. And then the comment after that, in practice, patients feel under duress to accept a treatment which they do not want in order to simply get a, a referral to appropriate care. Mm. And and I think that that is, um, that would shock most people that that happens um, in a democratic, you know, um, society with uh, choices in our health care, apparently. Yeah, what, what choice are you faced with if you say you're a uh, 16-year-old and your doctor said, based on your symptoms, I think you have endometriosis, but I won't refer you to a gynaecologist for a full assessment and for further treatment until you try this hormone treatment and and then only if that fails yes. to um, suppress or support your symptoms um, will we then refer you on. I mean, what message is that going to be sending to a teenager? But that's what they're faced with. Yeah, yeah. And, and if the GP can't diagnose it, how can they treat something random, you know, without actually sending you through to the person who could actually tell you what the issue was. And and that's what the vast majority of people with suspected endometriosis want, is simply a referral to a gynaecologist for a full assessment. Yeah. And, and, and that seems to me to be a pretty basic sort of a scenario for, yeah. for people to get appropriate care. And it's a peculiarity, really, in the New Zealand health system in a lot of ways. If I was talking to somebody who's immigrated from Germany, for instance, they honestly just look at me with a raised eyebrow and say, well, why don't I just go and see a gynaecologist? Yeah. Because to access that in New Zealand, you have to go through a GP. So if you have money, mm. health insurance, you can pick up the phone and book an appointment with a gynaecologist in private practice. You can't do that if you don't have medical insurance or the ability to pay that bill. You're stuck with the public system and the GP is the gatekeeper. Ah, that is um, fascinating, mm. um, concerning. Mm. <laughs> um, do you know if they're talking about this? Like, is this, this is something obviously you talk about close to your heart, close to um, many of us in the community sector that see gatekeeping in lots of different places. Do we know, are the medical professionals, are gynaecologists talking about this? I think gynaecologists are highly aware of it, but we just, uh, for one thing, are lacking the number of gynaecologists that we realistically need in New Zealand to address this health issue, and I acknowledge that, but again, that's a political decision. Yeah. Um, But we do have a research project that we have coming up. Um, We've managed to secure a little bit of funding for, which is addressing exactly what the barriers are for GPs because you know we could make assumptions here 
we want to know why exactly um, GPs are not referring on or uh, what their um, education needs are, resourcing. We, we don't we don't genuinely know mm. uh, what the issues are around primary care um, with endometriosis, and so we're wanting to explore that with um, with GPs. Mm. Um, you, you know, is it a lack of suspicion of endometriosis? Um, is it that they're not getting the um, the continuing education, or when they're training that they're not getting the education? You know, what is what are the issues? We want to tease that out. Mm. Mm. Um, when's that happening? Um, we've only just secured that funding, and it will be taking place over the next twelve months. And uh, yeah, so that we'll we'll be running uh, a, a survey with GPs nationwide uh, to try and uh, get their input into that. Mm. I'd be fascinated with the results. So we'll definitely be getting you back <laughs> in twelve months to talk about what you've found there. Yeah. Um, because at the very least, you would hope that undertaking research like that might raise some awareness as well. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. We've based it on a study done in the Netherlands into this very topic, and, uh, and it was interesting what they found there was that a lot of GPs who'd uh, had a patient come through who'd gone on to be diagnosed with endometriosis, they then had a higher suspicion of endometriosis in future patients coming to them. So... And I guess we kind of oh, see that in New Zealand. Sorry, so so they mm. found that if doctors had referred and they weren't diagnosed with endometriosis, they became suspicious in the future. Is that right? Uh, other, other way around. So if they had a patient that they referred on and that patient was diagnosed, then the next patient that turned up with similar symptoms, there'd be this light bulb moment. Oh, maybe this person's got is, endometriosis. Got yeah, 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 yeah. So then uh, once they have that exposure, they're more inclined to 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 push people through that system yeah yeah exactly it's that high suspicion of endometriosis yeah, was the yeah. was the differentiator i was reading suspicion as an i'm suspicious that you don't actually have it i, uh, I was right. reading that completely the wrong way got you but yeah medical suspicion yeah yep. so they had some exposure to it and they recognize it as this is yeah and starting to recognize the symptoms potentially as well yeah yeah exactly so um and i mean that's what we see already if if, if i talk to people um, the ones who are knowledgeable about endometriosis have either personally or quite often friends and family have yes. been diagnosed. And so, you know, it's, it's just that association with yeah. with it. Um, and, and I guess, you know, a big barrier we've got is a lot of the diagnostics is just women themselves recognising symptoms. Yes. Um, but the more we raise awareness, the more people present to GPs the yeah. more we need to flow through to the to the public hospital system, and then the more gynaecologists we need as well, which exactly. we already know is is not enough. We know it's not enough. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, when we talk about resourcing as well, um, there's resourcing that insight and endometriosis need also. And we were talking on fair prior about some of the challenges, and it's it's not just you; it's it's small NGOs generally. Um, it's often non-government um, funded NGOs and very often clustered into spaces like disability, education and health. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of accessing um, philanthropic funding for the work you do, why don't you go for government funding? Because there isn't any. Yeah, <laughs> okay, it's a good reason. 
and and we we would probably argue if these is if if government were going to invest some funding in this, you know, it, it would be better going into clinical practice. We'd rather see funding going towards a whole bunch of gynaecologists and you yes. know, better access of of care and treatment. Um, I mean, our services are valuable, but ultimately. We'd, we'd rather be out of business because yeah. people were actually being seen properly by the health system. And, and I think, you know, what what you hint at here as well is that your service isn't the clinical service. Your service is actually a community service. Mm. It's not a health service. And this is the challenge we've often faced with funders understanding what it is they're funding or what it is they're choosing not to fund. Yeah, yeah. I find it really fascinating that there is one inequity heaped upon another and that these are women who are struggling to to be seen through the health system and then here we are as an organisation trying to to support them in that journey, provide information and so on. Non-clinical, we don't Mm. prescribe, we can't do surgeries, we're not doctors, um, but we're trying to walk alongside people and support them with with that difficult process. Uh, you know, with a food bank or the budget advice service of of the health system, yes, the people that that can't access, um, you know, those services are coming to us for support, um, and yet funders will fund food banks and budget advice services which are already government funded, mm. but they won't have any funding for us, which just seems such a um, mm. illogical. Um, stance. It is. It's a, it's extremely frustrating as well. You've been a strong advocate for years in the funding space, trying to, you know, really clarify this message. You know, to to educate, I suppose, those working in funding spaces. But often they are quite removed um, from the grassroots of the work. And and I'm turning to that simply because I, I want to point out that we have some elections coming up very shortly. Um, the Well Trust is um, is going through another round of um, elections for their for their board and the trust is what um, provides funding for uh, or grants for a whole range of community arts and sports organisations um, in their catchment area. Mm. And um, You've had a, a long relationship with Well Energy. <laughs> yes, indeed, and and I think it's really important that we take the opportunity as a community to to get out and, and and vote. And there are some really good grassroots people who are running um, in that election as well, who have um, very lived experience working and delivering services in the not for profit sector. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is actually a critical piece of funding in in the region. Yeah. Um, it's one of the biggest funders that we have. And, uh, you know, they, they were set up originally as a community trust um, mm. to uh, take some of the um, profits from the um, Well Energy Network and make them available for community benefit. You mm. know, that's the brief... Originally, that's right. of, of the of the trust. And it's probably important to note that nobody is to turning talking about removing. Um, they call them discounts. They're rebates, um, not discounts. I, I find it a strange term. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so they're not talking about removing the the rebates that um, individuals in the catchment area get once a year. They're talking about um, 
really looking to grow, um, there are some individuals looking to grow um, the community, um, the pool of funding, which I think is fantastic. I think what's really important too is that the people who are elected are not just people who have sat on boards for years um, that work in businesses who aren't actually connected to the sector, who don't actually know and understand what happens, um, but people who are far more um, yeah, experienced in, in the community sector and so have a greater understanding of who's doing what and the impact that that has. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's an opportunity there for um, a lot of strategic thinking around what exactly that funding could be used for exactly. to, to develop a, a lot of you know community um, aspects. It's uh, it's really critical funding, and I don't think people um, who who just are power consumers actually really understand the importance of of that funding to the community. It would be fantastic to have um, funders generally be you know come together to perhaps create something that communicates that you know if you don't need support from the community sector you will never really know what exists you know um underneath it's a fabric of our society um it it just it's what holds people together but if you haven't needed it if you hadn't needed your cab or support from young workers resource center or you have been undiagnosed with you know endometriosis and you need someone to help support you to advocate for your health you know you you don't actually know that these things exist yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right and uh, you know i know origin research did that report um last year into yes. the value of the community health organizations and and something like two-thirds of all all people uh, that they they spoke to had some association with a, a person with chronic health who'd Often approach these chronic health organisations for support, and 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 yet there seems to be a disconnect between, you know, that need yes. and recognising that actually it needs a bundle of funding yeah um, to to support that. And the people who are in chronic health are not the ones who can afford to fund it. They, they can't. But I I do wonder if people assume it's government funded, like you know. Um, St John, you know, ambulance. A lot of people think that's government funded. You know, like there are there are lots of, um, and they do get some contracts, but it's not doesn't cover it anyway. That's a whole other thing. Yes, yeah. St John is New Zealand's most trusted brand, and yes. uh, I, I I don't think inside endometriosis is quite in the same category. Not quite yet. Not yet. <laughs> it is it is interesting. We are running out of time, but um, probably just wanted to talk about the importance of that vote then. Oh, a- absolutely. I think um, you know everyone's got a say, and. Uh, the value, I think, of the of the community sector is what's at stake here with the voting. Yeah. Um, you know, who gets onto that trust will have a a, a major say in the um, in the funding of the community sector, and and by by virtue of that, will shape the community yes. sector locally. And so everybody's vote counts. It, it really does, um, but not just your vote counting, understanding who's standing and what they stand for, and that's really hard because people's little bios can be quite misleading sometimes as well. You don't really get an insight into, you know, how um, what people kind of ideologically think and where their support might lie. Yeah, and I I think there's real value in having a thorough read of those and, and picking out the ones with community experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like I say, I think experience is far more important than just sitting on boards 
because it is a different experience. You know, someone like Neil Tolan has worked in the community for years. Like, he has experience. Peter Humphreys running the Men's Christian Night Shatter and Women's Christian Night Shatter. I mean, that's grassroots experience, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And there's, in my mind, no substitute for, for, for those sorts of experiences in the community sector yeah. when you're on a community trust. We've run out of time. Oh, no. I oh, know. Um, we will be back and we'll talk about this further. Um, but that's us for another week. You've been listening to Connect with Community Wife. It's all free of them. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.